I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hi, Brian Goldsmith. Hi, Katie Couric. So happy to be with you and so happy to talk about politics. You know, it's been a little over three weeks since Election Day, and people, I think, Brian, are still trying to process it. It's almost as if they're going through those stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked to us about, at least if you're on the losing side, and many of those folks are still at the denial stage, don't you think? Well, that's clearly true because a lot of them are sending millions of dollars to Green Party candidate Jill Stein online to pursue recounts in uh, three places where the, the famous blue wall broke for Hillary Clinton, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And I am probably more likely to grow wings and start to fly than for those recounts to overturn the results of the election. It's just not going to happen. The margins are too big. Meanwhile, Trump Tower has been the site of very interesting comings and goings with a lot of different candidates. It almost feels like uh, the dating game where people are coming and they're courting Donald Trump. They're having conversations with him most recently for Secretary of State. And uh, it's been a fascinating thing to watch because it's been so public, hasn't it, Brian? Yeah, it's it's almost like a reality show, you could say. I mean, normally this process is very hush-hush. Certainly, the president-elect doesn't communicate publicly about who the candidates are and how excited he is to meet them or to uh, interview them. I know. It's, so like this you, is, you, it's like, duh, 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 duh. He's 64, <laughs> duh. <laughs> da, da, da. He was a general. He was behind the Iraq surge. Is that the and he game had an music? affair with his biographer. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome da, 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 General David Petraeus. Now, was Chuck Woolery the host of the dating game? No, no. That was Jim Lang, baby. Jim Lang. Anyway, let's move on to our guest, Brian. Tell us about him, Bri. <laughs> well, <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I think he's a little bit better at breaking down politics than uh, 70s game shows, but we're going to have to sort of bear with him. Uh, he's really a central figure in Republican politics. He's advised almost every big-name GOP candidate from John McCain to Mitt Romney. He had his own podcast earlier this year, and he offered a, a very fascinating look into what Trump's election means, how it happened, and the path forward for the country. Mike Murphy, welcome to our little podcast. We're so excited you're here. Thank you for having me. I have a lot of time on my hands now. I have to ask you, Mike, how's it, what's a nice kid like you doing in a profession like this? How did you get into <laughs> political consulting, for crying out loud? Well, I may be out of it now because I was epically wrong this year. I was like the atomic well, clock Well, get, get in line, it. honey. That's true. It's a big room. But I, I was saying all year, mathematically, I did not think Trump could get enough votes to win. It turns out that you can lose by two and a half million and still win. So it's been a character-building experience. But I got into this. I'm from Detroit. I'm from a political family of Democrats. So I kind of grew up around it. And I kind of got the bug for domestic politics while I was still a college student. I worked for this congressman nobody thought could win out of my dorm room making radio commercials, and he won. And so one thing led to another, and now I'm a political consultant. So I called back to uh, Democrat headquarters at our house in Detroit and told my parents I'm going to drop out of Georgetown and go run off and join the Republican Party. And oh, that, that must have gone over, over well. Yeah, only converting to an Episcopalian might have been worse. It was <laughs> it was a bumpy conversation. So I took a, a leave of absence from Georgetown, uh, and I've never gone back. I do really more corporate and kind of uh, grown-up stuff now. I pretty much retired from doing campaigns, so Jeb did drag me back for one more great uh, effort because I believed in him. I thought he'd be the best president. So I ran the Jeb Bush Super PAC, which gives me the unique credential of having blown oh, over $95 million and not mazel, winning. Mazel, mazel, Mike. Yeah. And we should, we should let people know that Murphy's kind of the zealot of American politics. His clients have included Jeb Bush, as he mentioned, Mitt Romney, John McCain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tommy Thompson, Christy Whitman, so many others. Um, I'm always very amused on Twitter when people give him suggestions about how political strategy, sh strategy should be done. And his response is always, well, how many senators and governors have you elected? <laughs> well, I have to nice. say that I'm, my specialty is winning governor races, which I did, you know, worked hard to help Jeb Bush win in Florida or Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. And then uh, later on when they lose the presidential stuff, I always take my share of the blame. But I'm very proud of the governors I've worked for and the senators. Well, and you're more of a hopeless romantic, as you've described yourself, in presidential politics. What, is, what does that mean? Well, no. And I, I have a rule that in the presidential field, you should not be mercenary. So I always pick the person I think should be president, regardless of where they are in the polls, which is not a great career decision, but if you look at my record, I've done very well with senators and governors, have about the best record in the Republican Party. But at the presidential level, I worked for Lamar Alexander in 95. I thought he'd be the best guy. We started at 1% and got to 9. You know, we never quite made it. I worked for John McCain in 2000 because I thought he'd be the best. I took 2008 off because I was close to McCain and Romney, and I thought it was an ethical conflict to work for either one of them. I did work for George H.W. Bush in 88. I also worked earlier in that primary for Bob Dole. So I, I always think the presidential thing is a higher level deal, and you should really pick the best person regardless of polling and, and, you know, have the argument within the party and see which faction wins. And I've been less lucky at that, but I'm, I don't regret working for any of those guys. I think they all would have been excellent presidents. So to take us forward to this year, 
you've, you know the criticism, you know, the, raised this historic amount of money and Jeb Bush had the name and the connections and the endorsements and it was a big flop and therefore all your fault. Um, <laughs> what's, your, uh, what's your response to people who sort of question your acumen coming out of the, the Bush super PAC experience? Well, this job, being a political consultant or running a big political operation is like being a Big Ten football coach. Everybody with a bar stool in 50 states thinks they can do your job. I spent a lot of time thinking about things we could have done differently. And I imagined as this other senior people at Right to Rise have, we had some of the best consultants in the party. We had Larry McCarthy and Liesl Hickey, who'd had a great run at the NRCC. And we all think about things we could have done differently, but none of us come up with the outcome of we win the primary. We just weren't what they were looking for. And I would say in some ways, though, you know, you never want to justify a loss as business is about winning. Jeb stuck to his principles and never had to apologize for anything he did in that campaign. And I think if he was the nominee, we would have won the general election and uh, the country would be united behind him today. People didn't take Donald Trump seriously, including you. How were you so wrong? How were so many people so wrong, Mike? Well, we took him seriously, but not, I mean, here is our view, because we, you know, we talked to a lot of Republican primary voters, so we had a pretty good landscape of what was going on, and we saw there was about a third of the vote that was interested in Trump, and none of those people were interested in Jeb Bush. We were never going to get Trump and Cruz voters to vote for a guy like Jeb Bush, Uh, and so there might have been things we could have done better uh, on Rubio, better on Kasich. Uh, we might have sold Jeb in better ways, but Jeb was never going to go to the border and start rounding people up. He was never going to take that grievance message to his credit. I joked that we were we were selling classical music records at the tractor pole, and 60% of the primary was, wasn't interested in what we were selling. And so there it is. You know, I'm struck by something you said a little bit earlier, that you had the best professionals in the party, these highly regarded consultants. And Hillary Clinton also had the most highly regarded, highly paid Democratic consultants working for her. And yes, she won the popular vote, but she's not going to be the next president. Do you think that the era of the professional political tactician is coming to a close and being replaced by something new and different? No, I think that's a conventional, it's a very fashionable opinion. So I know for pretty much a fact that the single most surprised person on election night was Donald Trump when he won and his staff, some of whom were in betting pools, taking him as a loss among political consultants. So now we're going to have kind of the classic process story of let's throw out everything we know about politics because we had this flukish kind of win and the things that have been true and predicted for 40 years no longer count. And maybe I'm a traditionalist, but I don't believe that. We were involved in some Senate races, um, helping hold the Senate. And a lot of the same political consultants who are the idiots who work for losing presidential campaigns were running winning Senate campaigns. So I, uh, I've been around too long and seen too many fads come and go, particularly in easy magazine writing to believe a big indictment like that. That said, we can learn things from the Trump victory and get better at what we do. Didn't Donald Trump only win 22% of the eligible votes? So when you think about like a mandate or an overwhelming victory, isn't that a bit of a misnomer? Well, he won about 46.5% of the people who did vote, which is a lower percentage than Mitt Romney got four years ago. It's a lower percentage than you know, many losing candidates over the years like Hubert Humphrey and Gerald Ford. So, yeah, I think you're right. The The mandate question is uh, is a real one. What do you think? Well, I think it's true in percentages. In raw vote, he did pretty well. 
I mean, this was not a freakishly low turnout election. I, I think the real story of election day was the composition of the Republican vote that elected Trump through the Electoral College was different than we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason a lot of us missed it. So for people who are just trying to kind of wrap their brains around what happened, Trump lost a lot of the swing counties. He didn't perform as well as winners normally need to perform. And Hillary hit her marks in a lot of the Democratic counties. But what happened was, in Florida and in other places, Trump got big turnout and big margins out of counties where the Republican normally wins. By 15 or 20, he would win by 30 or more. Yeah, he, he had huge spikes in a relatively small number of places though he got it closer than many people thought to begin with. So you had two things going on. Lack of enthusiasm for Hillary, who was a pretty bad candidate. Uh, I don't know what her message is to this day. Stronger Together sounds like a glue slogan to me. Um, (laughs) But the point is, if you were swinging a hammer, bending metal in Macomb County, another county in north of Detroit, industrial county where Obama won last time and he won big this time, you weren't that interested in the gender rules about bathrooms for LGBT. Yeah. You were wondering what, what people are going to do about jobs for blue-collar people like you. Trump spoke to those people, many of whom historically have been Democrats, many of whom are industrial union members. She did not. And I think that's pretty big malpractice on the Democratic side. And, you know, there will be some repercussions in their party. But well, the it's almost she rolled is, over, she Mike. She Trump rolled over when it came to blue, blue-collar workers. I mean, it seems she just abdicated that whole voting block to Donald Trump. I was reading a piece in the New York Times that Bo Copley, who we had on Yahoo News the night of the election, a coal miner, you know, people were saying in West Virginia that all Donald Trump had to do was mention coal miners. And they basically, you know, they they flocked to him because they have felt so marginalized and so out of the mainstream for so long. Just a, a, a mere acknowledgement of their existence was enough to win their vote. Well, there's no doubt that the modern Democratic Party, and they've had some success with this, but if you look at kind of the intellectual elites that drive them, they're thinkers, and you look at the donor class that has huge influence, it's heavily dominated by people kind of from the social issues on the more libertarian, I'll call it, side, uh, more equal rights for people regardless of sexual preference, things like that, and the strong environmental groups. So if you're, you know, if you're working in a plant with a smokestack uh, running on coal-powered electricity, it doesn't look like your party anymore. And I think they paid a political price for that. But have no doubt, this was a real lockpicking of the Electoral College. That's why the Trump guys were as surprised as the rest of us, because it was a very weird coalition he got. And normally, if you lose by two and a half million votes, you lose. Um, so this thing, you know, uh, the media has to be careful about calling it a big mandate. It's really still a divided country, but we saw a pain scream, kind of a political riot of of sorts from about 50 counties where people have not had a raise in real wages for a long time. They work in the old economy, which doesn't seem hip and doesn't seem cool. She didn't talk to them and Trump did. Trump talked to him pretty base language. I think there were some stains on his campaign from the way he conducted himself, but it worked. It was enough to get him close overall and to trip those counties. Uh, And now he's the president-elect. Well, when we come back, let's talk about how he's doing as president-elect and about some of the moves he's made thus far, both in terms of personnel and on Twitter. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors and from you. We'll be back with Mike Murphy right after this. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. During our last episode, we asked to hear from some of our conservative listeners, and here's what you all had to say. Hi, Brian and Katie. This is Margie from Mississippi. I am a conservative voter, and in regard to the future of the Republican Party, a couple of things. First comment is that you are correct in your last podcast in saying that Calling uneducated white voters feels like it is an inferior vote compared to others, and that characterization is seen negatively. The second thing is in regard to the Republican Party, that that will continue to be based on economic progress. I have hoped for a Donald Trump administration in those respects and hope for the Republican Party on those bases. You know, it's interesting. She says that she was offended by some pundits talking about uneducated voters or non-college voters. Donald Trump himself said, I love the poorly educated, and nobody uh, in that camp seemed to take much offense. So I guess it depends on the messenger as well as the message. Well, I think we talked about it, and it does seem sort of smug and patronizing. So I appreciate that Margie feels that way too, because I've always felt slightly uncomfortable with the overuse of that characterization personally. Hey, Brian and Katie, it's Greg Gordon in Texas. And I normally vote for the Republican for president, but this time I couldn't do it. Um, Donald Trump scares me. He scares me because he's not presidential. As a kid, I, I mean, even now as an adult, I look up to the president. Not so much that they're smarter than me or better than me, but they just need to be presidential. And George Washington like, and Franklin Roosevelt like, and even Teddy Roosevelt, all those folks. Lyndon Johnson, they're just this big, humongous figure. And I just don't see it with him and his Twitter account. So anyway, thanks. And I love y'all's podcast. Well, thank you, Greg Gordon in Texas, for liking our podcast. You know, I wonder if anybody can be 
larger than life and completely presidential, given the ubiquity of social media and how much access the public has to these individuals. It's so accessible. What do you think of that, Brian? I think there's something to that. I think a lot of our greatest presidents wouldn't pass through the filter of modern media. They wouldn't get away with not being able to walk, hiding their physical infirmities like Franklin Roosevelt did, or being uh, as as unfaithful to their spouse as John Kennedy was. But um, there's something else there, too, which is that if you didn't like Donald Trump as a candidate, I don't think you're liking Donald Trump as president-elect right now. He's not operating in a dramatically different way than he did before November 8th. Meanwhile, for our next episode, we'll be speaking with Valerie Jarrett, President Obama's longtime senior advisor and very close and longtime friend. What questions do you have for her about her eight years working closely with President Obama in the White House? Please call us and leave us a message at 929-224-4637. If you're still struggling to find the perfect gift for someone who has it all and socks aren't exactly your thing, how about some meat for the carnivore (laughs) in your life? And that would be me, Brian. It's true. Omaha Steaks offers unique gifts for gourmet food lovers and just meat consumers like you, Katie. And right now, you get exclusive savings just for being a listener of this podcast. Listen to everything you're going to get for less than 50 bucks. Okay, hit it. (laughs) Two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, four kielbasa sausages, four burgers, a 12-ounce package of all-beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha Steaks seasoning packet, and four additional kielbasa sausages for free. So go to omahasteaks.com, enter our offer code Katie in the search bar, add the family gift pack to your cart, and get a 77% savings. It's the gift guaranteed to be a hit. Yum, I'm hungry. Cook out at Katie's. So we're back with uh, GOP Svengali, uh, <laughs> Mike Murphy, and uh, you go back a long way with Mitt Romney. You actually were the consultant for the only political race he's ever won for governor of Massachusetts in 2002. When we first met, you were plotting the early moves of that campaign in, in 01. I like to tease Mitt that I'm the only political consultant who's handed him a victory speech. Um, <laughs> he reminds me there were some primaries that he won and a nomination that I did not help him with. So uh, he's a good guy. Uh, he's a patriot. And I think, um, you know, well, President-elect Trump would be well advised to bring some people in who actually know the world. Well, President-elect Trump is putting— Mitt Romney through the ringer right now by encouraging or at least allowing some of his top aides to throw mud on Mitt Romney, to mix my metaphor. And do you think Romney, if he's offered the job of Secretary of State, should take it? Do you think he'd be positioned to succeed in that job? Or what's going on? Well, if you watch the Trump campaign, there's a juvenile culture of silly infighting among his staff. You know, they had about five purges. It was a banana republic of a campaign. So now we have somebody, Kellyanne Conway, 
who comes from the bottom tier Republican pollsters, who I think kind of won a lucky lottery here, uh, is out trashing Governor Romney uh, in the press. Well, the president-elect is trying to put his cabinet together, having a fairly thoughtful process, I think, of meeting with people and, and sounding them out. So I'm going to try to set an example for Kellyanne of how staff operate, and I'm not going to comment or speculate at all on what Governor Romney may or may not do, uh, just to say that um, he's eminently qualified, and I respect the president-elect's ability to make this decision, not be buffaloed by the public antics of staffers. But do you think he's walking into a situation in which he's going to be second-guessed and criticized and, and any time he makes a move as Secretary of State? Well, we know what the Trump campaign culture was. We don't know what the Trump White House culture is. It's either evolving toward a better thing or it'll be the same. So I think it's an open question. And there's one person on the planet who can drive that, which is the president-elect. He's got to choose. And uh, I think a lot of people are surprised that it's not been kind of tightened up. But that it's his operation, his culture. He's the one. So we're waiting to see. Well, reading the tea leaves, what are you what are you anticipating, Mike? Well, I you know, I've learned not to handicap the and predict the activity of Donald Trump. I thought he was very gracious on election night. And I think he's had days where he's succeeding. He's had days where he's been tweeting silly things and shaking the confidence in some of us who know what the job is. Uh, so I think it's still an open question. And these this silly staff trashing nominees that the president-elect is interested in. I mean, I saw even Axelrod tweeted something about this. None of us who've worked in serious presidential-level staff work have ever seen anything like it. So I, um, you know, I'm not going to fuel that fire by speculating about what Mitt might or might not do. Uh, I, I'll just say he's a grown-up who knows the world. Uh, he was proven right, I think, some of his criticism of President Obama on foreign policy. So his wisdom is proven. I, I'm a real fan of Mitt Romney's. I mean, I, I like him very much. But when I think of foreign policy, the name Mitt Romney does not come to mind uh, immediately. What really does qualify him to be Secretary of State, Mike? Well, the job of Secretary of State is to both represent the U.S. abroad as the president's top surrogate in international relations. And as Donald Trump said, he definitely skill. looks the part. Yeah, that's a sexist remark, I think. But um, <laughs> he he is a good negotiator, and he has relationships around the world. He is diplomatic and temperate. He also made a principled criticism of some of the weaknesses of the Obama foreign policy, uh, both about Russia and about the Middle East, that I think have borne more true than not. So he is, uh, I think he's as well-briefed and by temperament as well-equipped to be Secretary of state as anybody. But again, what I think doesn't matter, it's down to the decision of the president-elect. And I would encourage people to not watch the juvenile antics of, uh, of uh, figurehead campaign managers on Sunday shows and wait to hear from the president-elect. Ouch. Kellyanne Conway <laughs> on line two for you, Mike. <laughs> she was a figurehead. We all know Bannon ran the thing along with Trump, who really ran it. He's a one-man show. So I'm just not going to join the media herd of canonizing, uh, particularly with this kind of behavior, which I think undermines their own candidate. But from the Romney perspective, this is especially striking because he gave a devastating speech in March attacking Trump. Um, so how can you turn around and work for someone you've called a fraud and a phony, someone who would make the world more dangerous and whose trademark is dishonesty. How can you represent that person as, you know, the chief implementer of their foreign policy? Well, my guess, and I'm speculating here, is the argument that people who would urge Mitt Romney, if offered to take such a job, is that the national interest is the highest thing. 
And the more competent people who join a campaign team that may be a team of rivals, to use a familiar phrase, would be serving the country well. If the president asks you, it's hard to say no. Now, it's up to the president-elect to do the asking, and he may never do that. But if you're asked and the president-elect thinks that the campaign is over and it's time to unite and he could use your skills to further national interest, it's a hard thing to say no to. You know, there's been controversy around another Trump appointment, Jeff Sessions, for attorney general. I think this is correct, right? You worked for Sessions when he ran for the Senate. Ironically, in Jeff's first campaign, his consultants were myself and John Weaver, who worked for uh, uh, Governor Kasich. Yeah, exactly. Both Trump critics. This is a guy who was denied, as you know, a federal judgeship about 30 years ago because of allegedly racist comments he made. Do you think he'd be a good attorney general? Do you think his credentials on race are, are strong enough to unite the country? Brian, how did I become a surrogate for the Trump transition team here? (laughs) I'm asking your opinion as a political expert and as somebody who worked for the attorney general uh, designate. I do not believe he has a racist bone in his body. Uh, I worked for him in one campaign. I did not do the reelection. I think it'll be up to his Senate colleagues to look at his full record, and my guess is he will be confirmed. Um, You know, I have my own views about who ought to be Attorney General. I have my own views about who ought to be in the Trump White House. I have my own views about what Trump's hairstyle ought to be. (laughs) But, you know, I have no standing here. So, um, Would they ever reach out to you, Mike? uh, Oh, I think you'd be doing a podcast with noted meteorologists on the phenomena of hell freezing over. (laughs) Uh, before I think they'd ever uh, reach out to me. And, because I uh, think, well, you know, who 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 would have thought that they'd reach out to Mitt Romney after he gave that, as Brian said, devastating speech uh, during the campaign? I mean, stranger things have happened. Well, I think if the idea of Mitt Romney as Secretary of State, a widely respected guy, is enough to drive poor Kelly and Conway to distraction, that my name would probably put her into intensive care. <laughs> so in the interest of her health, let's hope there's none of that speculation. But no, I I don't think so. I'm, you know, I'm friendly with, uh, I, I care a lot about the domestic agenda we're going to have, which I think could be really good for America with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, both people I have a lot of respect for. So I'm I'm pretty focused on whatever I can do to help the Republican team, you know, create economic growth, lift up wages for everybody, and not have a trade war, which is the scariest part of Trump's campaign promises, though. I've learned that Donald Trump is flexible, and I'm not sure people should take his campaign rhetoric at face value, which I think could be a good thing. Well, speaking of that, I have to ask you about uh, about some of these blue-collar folks who supported him. There have been a number of articles since the election saying, basically, he's not going to be de- able to deliver on these campaign promises. He is not going to be the messiah that many of these folks hoped he would be. Um, what's going to happen when he's not going to be able to deliver? Well, that's a big question. I think if we get enough economic growth and wages lift up, he'll get a lot of credit for that. But you you have to be careful. Um, you know, it's kind of like steroids. Uh, yeah, you may grow muscles quickly, but all of a sudden you got heart problems. So you got to be careful with some of that rhetoric. And I think one of the things the Trump administration is going to have to do is manage expectations that he's clearly raised in these places, that he can wave a wand and make make some of the problems of manufacturing jobs go away, vanish. That said, a growth agenda 
um, with cheap energy, cheap electric power, which we haven't grasped in America now because of our abundant energy resources and things the government can do, can make manufacturing more competitive in the U.S., and I think we can stem that tide. So there could be some good news with the right policy, but those expectations are now pretty high in those places. I saw a chart in the Washington Post, Mike, that said manufacturing output is actually up. It's employment at those manufacturing establishments that is down. In other words, automation is really, uh, you know, responsible for these jobs being reduced. So, you know, what's he going to do about that? Well, that's a challenge across the economy because we have increasing productivity, which means fewer people are producing more, which is good for the economy, creates more wealth, lifts up the country, but takes self-driving cars. If, If they do become a huge thing in 10 or 15 years, we're going to put a lot of truck drivers out of work. So we're going to have to get a lot better than the government has been traditionally at retraining people for better skills. And I think we have to take a new look at our our educational system. The German model is pretty good about training people in kind of vocational skills that are the jobs of the future. Because the hardest thing to do is get any kind of toothpaste back in the tube. Mm-hmm. And, and having the old approach, which is, hey, you were a master machinist, you're 54. Uh, now you're going to learn how to uh, uh, teach children's theater because we're going to have a ridiculous <laughs> night course here. Um, that We know that doesn't work. So doing more of the same doesn't do it. But you we're, said you're optimistic that Trump's agenda could spark economic growth and be good for the country. The core of his agenda seems to be a big regressive tax cut. I mean, there's no evidence that the that the George W. Bush tax cut or even the Reagan tax cut was responsible for big economic growth. It, there's no evidence that eliminating the estate tax and the gift tax would be good for economic growth. So you're smiling because you think I'm giving you Democratic talking points. <laughs> well, but, you are, but keep going. Well, I, I, and the other big part of his agenda is a, a tax credit to support for-profit infrastructure developers, which is also deeply problematic because most of our most highly needed sort of infrastructure projects are not the kinds of things that would be attractive to these for-profit developers. So what what gives you hope in his agenda? The, the fact is that the best thing for wages is economic growth because it creates more demand in the labor market and raises wages. That's our big problem. Um, if you're in the working poor, uh, we have a great social welfare system if you fall a little bit into poverty. We're not so great at the institutions of upward social mobility for people in the working poor or in the middle class. So we, we need more labor demand and we need to be better at retraining. The bigger question for me in economic policy is not our tax cuts good. It's Will Trump, who's a populist. And when I think about domestic policy, by the way, I'm listening to McConnell and Ryan a little more than I'm listening to President-elect Trump right now, because I my guess is they're going to be leading on it, and he'll be okay with that. But Will Trump is a populist to have the guts to take on the entitlement problem, which is a huge suck on the federal budget. Well, he budget promised as a candidate he wouldn't, wouldn't touch, touch Social anything. Security right. and Medicare. Right. Well, there's appetite to take some political pain in the House and the Senate on the Republican side to do it. And I think that and trade could be the two big domestic fracture points. I think people should also never forget that despite all the focus on personalities, the Congress really has the power in domestic policy. The president's no pushover. He has the ability for executive orders and to appoint people. But the budget, the big things come out of the Congress. Institutionally, there's always pressure. So will Trump fight that or will he kind of outsource domestic policy to the Republicans there and focus on foreign policy? That, to me, is one of the big decisions he'll have to make. Because if he starts fighting with the congressional guys, then nothing will happen, which is, you know, something we've proved for a decade now. 
it seems unlikely that his base is going to be content with the kind of Marco Rubio-style domestic policy agenda of free trade and big tax cuts. Well, I don't know. It's kind of an open question. I mean, I agree he's made some promises on trade. We'll see if he believes them. I hope he doesn't because a trade war would be devastating for the economy and it would really hurt the people that he ran to help. But, you know, his base is built more, his appeal in the party is based more on personality, that he's a can-do guy who's going to come to Washington, shake things up. He was a way to punish a political system that Americans have lost faith in. So ideologically, one lesson we learned in the primary is that all the campaigns assumed early that, yeah, Trump's going to, he's famous from television. He's interesting. The media is in business with him, you know, because he's rating. So he'll have a spike, but then the ideological stuff will catch him. Because in the last thousand Republican primaries, ideology was a huge deal. This year, it took a break. People gave Trump a huge pass on ideology. We'd never seen that before. That's one reason we were all wrong. So I don't know if the ideological schism will work in the future. It didn't work in the primary. Now, normally, over the fullness of time, it does work. And I would agree with you. But then again, that's why I thought Trump would probably not be nominated. And I was sure wrong. One story that I, I wanted to get your view on um, that's gotten a lot of attention the last few days is this recount effort in the three states you mentioned, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, being helmed by the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, right. um, for which she's been able to raise millions of dollars online. Some people are saying that that may be a scam. But I'm curious whether you think there's any chance that could that could make a difference in one state, let alone three, and kind of what the purpose of all of this is. You know, I think she's already done enough to help Donald Trump. <laughs> um, if you look at some of the votes in places where she had little spikes, uh, and heard Hillary Clinton. Look, I don't get it. Uh, it is a very close result in Michigan. It is a very close result in Wisconsin. But even if those were miraculously overturned by recount, which none of the kind of political grownups in those states that I know think, the Pennsylvania is still there. And Pennsylvania, 60-ish thousand votes is a good number. It's close. But the Pennsylvania recount system is very cumbersome, too. And I doubt that Jill Stein people have the organizational acumen to even be able to prosecute that. So I, I think it is not a good thing for the country to argue over the legitimacy of an well, election. If you don't like this, then argue for a new electoral college system. The compact, which is saying, you know, which would allocate electors by popular vote and ratio, not winner take all in each state. That doesn't need the constitutional change. Well, do you happen. think that should happen, Mike? Um, you know, I'm torn about it. I'm a Republican, so I like the fact we have a little English on the ball in the Electoral <laughs> College. Um, but I I think it is, let's put it this way, the, the, we've had enough of these outcomes. We've had two in 16 years where the Electoral College decided and the, the other The popular vote. That I think we're eroding confidence in the popular vote. We're eroding confidence in the system. So the compact is more attractive to me now than it used to be. I, I'm a market guy. That's what I like about the Republican Party. And in the markets of votes— you know, we, we've created a party where we've lost six of the last seven contests. So we've, we've succeeded under the rules because of the Electoral College, but I, I'm not sure building a system where you're not trying to get the most votes is a good thing. So I'm kind of warming to the contest. What do you idea. think of this tweet by Donald Trump uh, uh, this week where he said, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally? Wah, wah, wah. I mean, don't we always hear that from Republicans and there's no basis for that assertion? 
Well, you had me till you went into the Republican thing at the end, and I like the quack noise. I haven't heard that from Trump. Look, I thought it was beneath the office of president. I was deeply disappointed with it, and it was absolutely factually wrong. And reacquainting the president-elect with the truth will be a big part of hopefully what a competent staff uh, will be able to do. I mean, both parties have played the legitimacy game against each other, but look, it was wrong, and he should be called out for it. Well, I think you just did that. I have to ask you before you go, because I know you have to scoot, about the, the role of the press. What did the press do wrong, and how does the press make it right? Um, and and under the circumstances, given that Donald Trump is proving to be as unconventional a president-elect as he was a candidate, how can these two entities get along, or should they not be getting along at all? It feels like a big mess to me, Mike, and I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, it, it, it is a mess. I mean, I work there, and so I see a lot of journalists work really hard to try to get the story right. The problem is we've had this crossover of pop culture, and I've seen it before. I worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger when he ran for governor of California here. So it's not new to have kind of famous people from the world of entertainment move into politics, but this was at a whole new level. And I think on one hand, you have the economics of news where the more seasoned, older, experienced reporters have been pushed out and young, hardworking, ambitious reporters who tend to, though, travel in a herd linked by their Twitter accounts um, have, have emerged. And so the coverage is fast, but not necessarily smart and ring-wise. The other weakness I think the media has is to cover politics like sports. And it's all scorekeeping. It's all coaches poll. Um, it's all these damn polls. You know, the polls are a weird thing where the media creates the story and then covers it. And now we find out a lot of the state polls were wrong. So I think the media's obsession with process and the, the celebritization of, of consultants, all that stuff they could step back from. I mean, the last thing I'd say, and I've, I've said this publicly, and again, I, you know, I work there, so maybe I'm part of it. But whenever I was on television at NBC, I tried to tamp down this instinct that every day is the Hindenburg explosion. <laughs> Everything that happens is the most important thing of the campaign. Uh, because, you know, the more heat, the more eyeballs, the, the commerce of it. And I get it. We get paid. They have to sell, you know, cable rights and, and ads to do it. But um, every day is not the most important day in the campaign. And so that that velocity craze, that, that flashing lights and exclamation points, um, it makes the really important stuff get lost because if everything's important, then nothing's also, really important. Also, it's hard to search for truth, isn't it, when everybody has their own version of it? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Well, and even if the mainstream media gets better at bringing real reporting and perspective to these stories, the voters that matter in a lot of these elections aren't aren't watching that. Right. And the, the interesting fact we had this year that power of digital media to be ubiquitous has been around for a while. But now we had organized efforts to put fake lying news through the unfiltered world of social media, some of it, a lot of it coming from our good friends over in Russia. I mean, I've read half of these emails in the original Russian, and uh, <laughs> it, it, it is troubling because there was, we now know from our own intelligence services, there was a real effort to screw with the dialogue of our election, particularly through social media, uh, by countries that are geopolitical rivals. And uh, that's the problem with the internet. Everything can go everywhere for free, and you can get all kinds of information, but there's no filter. There are no editors. Why, are pe why don't and people find this more upsetting, you know, the the role that Russia might have played in, in the election process? It doesn't seem like people are taking it that seriously. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It troubles me a lot. The only thing I can say is when we make our politics a reality show with reality show candidates 
trivia being screamed 24-7, um, instant snap polls, and a kind of a postmodern eye roll to the whole thing. We take the stakes down. And when the stakes are down, why do you care? And that is the real danger, I think, of this new style of kind of politics light. And uh, it could, we could pay a price or it could be a phase and there'd be a reaction against it. And the next campaign will be the opposite of this one because people will decide they didn't like what they got. That, that's the open question to me. Or it could just be that the Clinton supporters were very troubled by the Putin bromance. The Trump supporters either didn't believe it or bought Trump's excuses for it. And, and we all kind of move forward from there. It's, it's, you know, one side believes X, the other side believes negative X. Yeah, it could be, but I, I just think when you when you add clown shoes to a campaign, you take the reason to take things seriously away. What do you predict for the midterms, Mike, or is it just too early to tell? Well, you know, in 2018, there are a lot of Republican states electing senators. So the traditional analysis would be Republicans should have a really great 2018 and build on their Senate majority. I would say, one, in the modern era, beware traditional analysis, although the the geography of it does favor the Republicans. And two, there's no doubt that in the blue states, the sleeping giant has been awoken of angry Democrats. Uh, so I have a feeling 2018 could be a real epic battle. And while I would handicap the Republicans as having the advantage, we got to see what President-elect Trump does for two years and how he manages his new stewardship of the Republican brand. And that's a big question. Mike Murphy, we've been looking forward to this for many, many weeks. We're so thrilled to have you on our podcast and so excited that you have your own cleverly called Radio Free GOP. Um, are you enjoying doing a podcast, Mike? You know, I've had a lot of fun with it. I put it on hiatus for a while because I didn't think it was right to be complaining about the president-elect till we give him a chance to succeed. But as I tell people, I have buried the resistance transmitter in the secret location, and it can always be dug up and reignited. <laughs> so maybe it'll come back. But yeah, I enjoyed a lot, and I enjoy listening to this podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, as always, to Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering and mixing it. Thanks to Mark Phillips for our theme music. Remember, you can also email us at comments at currickpodcast.com. You can find me on social media at GoldsmithB on Twitter. You can follow Katie at at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and Katie.Couric on Snapchat. I'm everywhere. <laughs> She's ubiquitous. <laughs> Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe to the show as well. It really helps other listeners to find it. So we'll talk to you next time. And please let us know your questions for Valerie Jarrett. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. I always wanted to be a contestant on the dating game. <laughs> well, helping us to make sense of politics instead of, well, me, that was such a fake laugh. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm late. <laughs> 
Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 